When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to August. And a big thank you to our latest Patreon subscribers who are Derek Moss, Mary Brazier and Natalie Guy. Because it's you and all the rest of you that have enabled History Rage to go weekly from now. So thank you very much. We really appreciate your support. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we let members of the historical community give us some stick about the myths, set the record straight and release the frustrations that just get in the way of their sanity. We are a safe space for a nervous academic breakdown. I am public historian Paul Bavel. And I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host, good friend, and fellow historian, Kyle Glover. Hello, everyone. We're back again by the sound of things. Still here. Yep. Now, we pride ourselves on ripping apart some cherished icons of British history. We've taken apart the First World War, the Battle of Waterloo, and the Battle of Britain. And this week, we've got a true icon in our gun sights, and we're going to blow it out of the damn sky. To do this, we welcome aviation nut, writer, and history hack regular, Matt Bone. Matt, welcome to History Rage. Thank you very much, gents. I'm looking forward to this. I, I have pent this up for a long time, so I'm, I'm are we, ready are to we go. Are we about to light a blue touch paper and duck? Yes, just a little bit. Good, good. That's what we're after. Alex Churchill is your benchmark. Let fly. <laughs> oh, dear. That, that's, that's, a, that's a bar I've spent two years trying to figure out where it is. <laughs> Now, Matt, you came to us on recommendation from Zach White after Zach came on to do our Waterloo episode. So so for us and for our other listener, please take a moment to tell us about yourself, your work, your speciality. Oh, dear. T- tell me about, let's talk about me for a minute. Oh, thank you, gents. It's very kind of you. Um, I'm one of the team on History Hack, and I got roped into that after a, a few years working with a restoration project for an aircraft that we will not be talking about today. Um, And it was, that sort of was the culmination of a lot of years of passion in aviation. I got to actually put those efforts into trying to get an aircraft put back together and restored. Um, And through that, I got into the more historical side of the Typhoon, its history, its pilots. And from there, it 
just sort of snowballed and I've been lucky enough to be taken on by by Alex and Alina and Zach to do specific shows about Second World War aviation on, on the pod. And through that, it's just gotten bigger and bigger. So it's for all the stuff I prattle on on Twitter and if you, yeah, in airplane and things like that, when you read me trying to show that the typhoon wasn't a, a complete bag of squirrels, it's this passion for telling stories about things that people don't really get to see. And the thing we're going to talk about at the moment is this massive blind spot that we have um, when actual around that periphery, there are vital personal stories and you know tragedies and absolute triumphs that I just am really passionate about. And I just love the opportunity to get to speak to them. So uh, diving into the archives and finding these little nuggets to get to share with people who then usually go, yeah, we talked about that a while ago. And you just go, well, that's great. At least someone else found it as well. Oh, you can say, well, I'm talking about it again. Yes. Sit down and listen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that gives us a little bit of the background and thank you very much. So I can see that you're kind of chomping to really let fly. Um, so on History Rage, we're all about the thing that drives you absolutely insane and has done for quite some considerable time. So Matt, please, with as much emotion as you feel it warrants, would you please tell us and our listeners that thing which you just wish we would all get over? Go. The Spitfire. This, Ooh, oh, yeah, now, so now. we're going controversial. <laughs> well, just uh, be, hold on there, because that sound that you can hear in the background, listeners, is the is coming from beyond the grave of at least a thousand hurricane pilots that are now cheering. There's this idea that we're going to, we're going to discuss how it came about and things like this, but the Spitfire mainly because it looks perfect. And I, I, I'm going to say this, which might also be weird. I love it. It's an incredible thing. And we're going to talk about, but it's this perception that it was the greatest fighter aircraft since Pontius was a pilot. (laughs) <laughs> this, you know, this this idea that without it we would have lost everything. We'd all be speaking German. This idea that this one very interesting design changed changed everything. When it didn't, it was an incredible important cog in the overall machine. But for some reason, especially to you know to, to little ones running around at air shows and things like that everything's a spitfire and if it's not a spitfire it doesn't matter and i think that's that's why i get worked up about it that something that i love and have a passion for in this aircraft because we all do it's amazing mm-hmm. but it's this perception that everything else was lesser because of this weird thing that some guy worked himself to death designing and because of that we had this miracle weapon that saved it all that's all complete crud i'm sorry it's it's not. The story itself is far more interesting. But we now, you know, you, you just say to someone, Spitfire, and they will go, oh. <laughs> Myself included. Yes. Yeah, and, and, I, I have to say, when, when I see the Battle of Britain Memorial flight fly over and I hear that engine, you know, it just... It, it just takes you... It takes, it takes me back to a time that I wasn't even around in. And and that's the thing. It It sets this weird parallel time and place in people's minds. Um, you just have to turn on the news. And I'm sure today at some point the Spitfire got quoted in the Houses of Parliament for whatever reason. It's this weird nationalistic patriotic thing, partially designed by a Canadian, flown by just about 
every allied nation in the world of men and women of all stripes and colors. And yet we kind of have this weird, oddly Aryan Brill Cream Boy idea of what the Spitfire and its pilots were. And it, that just gets gets my goat. And you've brought me on to, to let me rant about it for a little while. So thank you very much. Yeah, I can see you're smiling already as well. Your blood pressure is lowering. So, right then, well, let's kick off this detailed discussion then, Kyle. I believe you're going to, uh, well, you're going to yeah. take the chocks away. Yeah, just to let everyone know, I'm from Stoke-on-Trent, if you can't tell from my ridiculous accent. So this this episode pains me to record, um, but I'll try to get, get into it. <laughs> Um, so what is it specifically about the Spitfire that gives it this reputation that seems to eclipse all other aircraft? Not just for the British, but well, at least from the British perspective, but from all other aircraft throughout the war. Well, it had the same effect on Germans. You ask any German pilot what shot them down, it was a Spitfire. You know, it, of course. It's, it, yeah, well, what else would it have been? You just have to look at it. Every line on that beautiful aircraft could have been carved by michelangelo it's 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 amazing yeah we, we were joking a minute you say spitfire everybody goes oh and gets you know a little bit embarrassed and has to cross their legs you know it, it's an incredible piece of design and the reputation comes from the fact that you can just show it to someone and they have an emotional reaction to it you know we can think about things that came after it E-type Jaguar, for example, that same sort of mm -hmm. thing. You see an E-type and you go, oh, that's nice. Formula One fans, you can go Maserati 250F and just go, perfect. It's that visceral emotional reaction to something. And then you turn it on and it's even better. You know, this that sound at the moment. Personally, I'm a Griffin man. I think the later ones with the longer nose, they've got better proportions. There's something about the Griffin supercharger as well that just makes a little bit of a nicer noise to my ear. But a Merlin, you can't beat a Merlin. And what that noise when it fires up and there's that pop, 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 pop. Oh, it's amazing. I'm actually sounding like I'm, I'm selling this too much. We're going to get into the bad stuff in a minute. But, you know, that's why it is. It is as a piece of aesthetic design, mm. damn near perfect. And it's the that design that, also holds it back, but people forget about. And you know, we yeah, we delve into this more when I can start complaining about it, which I'm really looking forward to. If you haven't noticed, but the reputation is firmly based upon this reaction that was there from the beginning. But then, in the summer of 1940, not only does it play a huge role, but it's used mm -hmm. as this massive propaganda device for the whole world you know hurricane's great but look at this it you know it's it's a racing car it doesn't look mean and purposeful like the german aircraft or the hurricane for that matter it's beautiful it's slick it's you know it's buck rogers it's you know it's dan dare it's that sort of idea it was just so different and that's why it sort of it got under people's skin and and still does to this this very day yeah i have to say when um <laughs> I I laugh, but you, you mentioned there's like kids running around at air shows and things like that. And I, I as a kid would get those little remember the little like polystyrene slot together ones that flew oh, and everything great, like that. Yeah. And I I I remember being disappointed, visibly disappointed when uh, my parents brought me one back from the shop and it turned out to be a hurricane and not a Spitfire. And I'm I feel ashamed of myself for doing so now because I am 
the you know i i am the guy that's constantly championing the hurricane and he, the battle of britain was fought by the hurricane and it it needs its place but yeah i i remember being shamefully disappointed that i i hadn't got the spitfire you ask a kid to draw a second world war airplane they're going to draw a spitfire you know it's that that's what it comes down to it's it looks right and when something looks right it usually is right and it, it kind of was but that you know the you know nuance is sexy and it's that nuance which actually goes to show the differences around it and you know i i, I yeah i've been lucky enough to get up close and to, to many of them and they they are magical you know MH434, probably the most famous Spitfire in the world, Ray Hanna's old machine. Mm. Yeah, I, I did get a little bit wobbly when I got to see her on a check and she was all in bits and got to rub my hand down. But do you see, think of that. That's not because she's a Spitfire. That's because she's the Spitfire that flew under the bridge in Piece of mm. Cake. You know, that's that's my yeah. childhood growing up. That's, yeah. you know, it's it's those sorts of things. It's a plane that flew down the, the strait at Goodwood below the stands. Yeah, that's why that particular aircraft means something to me because it's the spitfire we all know but that's not i don't have that reaction with all of them two-seater ones i'm, I'm not particularly fussed by but you know it's it's it it, it is it is magical but it do, it means different things to different people and it means in my mind the wrong thing to most people yeah so if it starts out with that that sleek racing car design uh, and you, you can see at the time particularly if you happen to be waiting waiting for the Luftwaffe to come and bomb your air raid shelter or your underground shelter or pretty much anything else you know you can see why that iconic image of the spitfires roaring overhead is is really going to get you going it's really going to stay with you for life we're now 80 years on how is that kind of how has that reputation saturated the public consciousness? You know, is it movies? Is it air displays? Is it shortbread tins at coastal resorts? It's, you know, what is it? How How's it stuck with us this long? Because it's never really gone away. From the outset, it was, you know, it was a propagandist dream. You know, you immediately had Spitfire funds that people, could, I think it was five grand and you got to buy buy a Spitfire. Or you got to buy, you could donate a Spitfire. And that's where you've got all the named Spitfires come from, and and, mm-hmm. and that's and many other types of aircraft as well. But it was the Spitfire fun, yeah. Melt down your pots, make Spitfires. It was this instant channeling of this idea that this aircraft meant, yeah. As on the um, the Spitfire factory, there's the lady in the intro that looks at the aircraft and goes, "It's victory and freedom." Well, that was what it was sold as, and. From you know the very beginning, it's everywhere. You know it, it is because you have to also have to remember this is the newest of those frontline fighters that comes in. You know the Hurricane's been in yeah. service from sort of 1937, 1938. The ME one hundred and nine has already been in a war. The BF one hundred and ten has already been in service for a little bit longer, and then all of a sudden comes this thing, and everybody goes ooh. Yeah, you know, exactly that sound that we all make. The fact it doesn't quite work, and the Mark One is pretty pants. You know, it 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 you know it, it the guns on it freeze. It climbs until it gets to the constant speed propellers. It's not a great bit of kit, but it looks the balls. So everybody's immediately concerned. Mm-hmm. On the other side, they're worried about it. 
on our side, it's making it work. But look at this amazing new thing we have as we enter this second conflict in 20 years. And, you know, yes, okay, we're going to come to the Battle of Britain in a bit, but immediately, you know, it's, um, you've got movies from like 1941 that star the Spitfire. You've got, um, I've noted a couple down, uh, you know, the Dangerous Moonlight, A Yank in the RAF, great film. Terrible, but great. Betty Grable, Tyrone Power. And at the end of it, there's these great shots of um, Spitfires being, I think they're, they're fives, getting all re- rearmed and re- 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 um, rejigged. And then there's Siren Power in like a plastic sort of cutout cardboard Spitfire. It's brilliant. Um, <laughs> but then in 1942, you get Leslie Howard's The First of the Few. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's this moment when the myth that we all know comes in. Because you, it's not a movie about the Spitfire. It's a movie about sacrifice. And yeah. it's about this man, R.J. Mitchell, who, you know, has this dedication for speed and for grace aircraft, working himself to death to save Britain from the Nazi hordes that he alone has gone to see. And he's going to sacrifice himself to give it, you know, David Niven at the end, when he pulls the canopy back after the big air battle and goes, yeah, they can't take the Spitfires, Mitch. They can't take them. And then it breaks. And you've got never in the field of human, all that. It's amazing. Yeah, I've in my little cupboard down here and it's gone missing i've got my vhs copy of spitfire the the david o selznick cup which makes david niven the main character that my grandmother gave me in the late 80s i love the movie and i hate it in equal measure yeah i you know very bad joke about the reason leslie yeah leslie Hare got shot down was because the little didn't like the portrayal of themselves in it you know it's it's <laughs> it's it's there but everything in that movie paints this picture of what this aircraft is and what Mitchell sacrificed to do it. Mitchell was, you know, Staffordshire lad, worked his way up across mm. the shop floor. You know, he swore more than my boss lady on, on History Hack, Alex Churchill does in, in, in any recording you're likely to do, which is going some way, ladies yeah, and gentlemen, I can the, tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I think our listeners may be still smarting from that one. <laughs> But yeah, this this is it's created this mythology from the beginning. Mitchell's signature isn't on any of the drawings for the Spitfire, but he was orchestrating this incredible team. You know, um, Al Fadi, uh, Beverly Shetson, the, the aerodynamicist, um, Joe Smith, who's the man who's probably most important in this story going forward. But that film creates this idea of a very posh, foppy guy watching seagulls, and he comes up with the Spitfire. And I think that's where it comes. And then in the 60s, when it's all calmed down a bit, you get Battle of Britain, which is all Spitfires yeah. because there's no hurricanes left except for the one that they superimpose, which is still flying with. Um, and then you get the books. You've, you know, here we go. Where are we? For the listener, I'm showing my first edition of Pierre Klosterman's The Big Show. There we go. Which is an incredible book. Mm-hmm. Historically terrible. Yeah, most of the stuff that's happened, the, the way he describes it in it doesn't happen. But it's all about the wonders of the Spitfire and then, quite rightly, the wonders of the Tempest. But that's another show. But it's all these books that start coming out during the war and just after the war, which talk about the Spitfire as this magical thing that if you were in it, you could shoot anything you want down. And isn't it amazing? I mean, I suppose even as late as, you know, recent war movies, you know, you just go back to Dunkirk, whatever you think about it. You know, one of the key characters in it is Tom Hardy flying mm-hmm. his Spitfire over to to the Dunkirk evacuation. There's never any question of any other aircraft that 
may have been part of fighter command, coastal command. If you're going to fly a plane over to France during the war, it's going to have to be a Spitfire. And, and th- that's the thing. You know, that's the first time the Spitfire is really in combat. You know, the first thing it does is it kills a bunch of other RAF pilots. You know, the, the Battle of Barking Creek. The Spitfire's first kill is a Blenheim. You know, it, it, we, we don't talk about things like that. We don't talk about the mistakes. We talk about, you know, Tom Hardy having more ammunition in his aircraft than anyone ever in the history of aviation. But it does, to be fair, run out of it, which is more than can be said for most war films. <laughs> I, I, I have a soft spot for, for Dunkirk. Those flying <laughs> scenes are incredible. Yeah, um, yeah I think oh, yeah. John Romain, John Romain in, in the 109 does some incredible stuff um, in that. But in my mind, I'm watching it, I'm going, that's about 10 seconds. That's about 20 seconds. Yeah, that's yeah. 45 seconds. And by the time he, the end of the movie comes, he's just like, I don't care anymore, really. Yeah. <laughs> so now that we've got that re- reputation firmly in our gun sights, let's take it apart. I know you've been looking forward to this, and I can feel that this is going to be quite a long podcast. Here we go. So why doesn't it deserve the pedestal that we've put it on? Okay, so I've literally made three bullet points for this with no other notes because I'm primed and ready to go. It's a fighter interceptor, which is important. The Battle of Britain, which you've already had Jim on, and he did a brilliant job about that, but we're going to come to that. And my third point is, it was made to do things it shouldn't. So let's take what fighter interceptor means. Now, within the world of aviation, especially uh, war war planes, aircraft have different roles. Now, the Hurricane and the Spitfire came along for a need for a fighter interceptor to work within a coordinated air defense system. So what was the Spitfire and the Hurricane supposed to do? They were supposed to be able to take off and climb quickly. They were supposed to be able to engage bombers. They were bomber destroyers, not dogfighters. So they had to be maneuverable enough to get through a bomber stream and fast Mm -hmm. enough to then get around and do it again if they still had more ammunition or get home, rearm, refuel, and do it again. They were expected to be taking on bombers coming over the North Sea from Germany because nobody thought France was going to fall. And amazingly, you don't get just one of these things, you get two. You have one which is an old school design. It's basically a a heart with the top wing taken off, but it's quick to build. Its guns are in the right places. It's sturdy. It can be repaired with some guy just sticking a patch on the back of it because half of it's canvas. You know, the hurricane is rough, it's ready, you can throw it together in a minute. It's 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 perfect for that little period. Spitfire takes four yeah. times as long to build, but it climbs really, really fast. At altitude, its thin wind is perfect. It can turn on a sixpence. And that's its moment. You know, this is the moment when it's in a point defense role. That is when the Spitfire is doing what it was designed to do. So if you look at the Battle of Britain, where it's the junior partner in all of it, really, when it's at Malta and when it's in other places, especially you know, we we can we can slag off the um sorry, not slag off, we can have a go at the sea fire um a little bit later. But again, it's still that thing. If you're doing a cap over the fleet, you want this thing to get up and be able to do its job quickly. So that mm-hmm. very rapid climb, all of that, that's why it's there. What it's not there to do, and we'll jump ahead to things that it shouldn't do, is interdiction. So that is when you go out looking for trouble. 
So as soon as the Battle of Britain ends, uh, Trafford Mallory, who's yeah. now been promoted to a position slightly above his competence and will be continually promoted above his position of confidence, immediately says, we've got to take the fight to the Germans. So you immediately have these rodeos and circuses trying to draw up the Luftwaffe into the mother of all air battles. And to do this, they've taken the Mark II Spitfire and they've said to Joe Smith, we need it faster, we need it bigger, it needs cannon, it needs all of this stuff. So he starts working on the Mark III. Yeah. But in the meantime, they need a bit more oomph. So they stick a bigger Merlin in the front of it and they call it a Mark V. And the V's pretty good. You know, it does the job. It doesn't really have the range to spend much time over France. So they go over in big wings. They don't find anything. They come back. And, you know, sometimes there's big dogfights and things, but they're, they're actually losing a lot of people on this pointless mission profile. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden they start saying, well, okay, well, on your way back, shoot stuff up. And hang on, you're taking a high altitude, high performance aircraft, and you're dropping it into an environment where it's not supposed to be, which is low level. And this is, this is where things start getting really bad because the Luftwaffe are, are busy looking east, but they're still keeping the pressure up on Britain. They're, they're, they're flying at night, but they're also going in low level. So yeah. in 1942, the FW-190 shows up, scares the bejesus out of everybody, and they go, oh, we need a new Spitfire. By this point, the Spitfire Mark III has been cancelled. The fives are right. Oh, well, we need to up-engine it again. So they take a Mark II Spitfire and put an even bigger Merlin in it. And that becomes the Mark IX because the Mark VIII is taking too long to develop because Joe Smith has all these competing things coming at him. So he's trying to make the bigger, better Spitfire, longer range, better wings. And they're doing all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it's still the Mark II. Yeah, that's why I think the Mark II is the greatest Spitfire of all time, because without it, you don't get the two interim ones that see out the war. But you keep shoving all this stuff onto it and then making it do things that it shouldn't. So it struggles against the FW-190 at low level. So that's why the Typhoon is safe, because it's fast enough to do something about it. The FW-190 has a dodgy as hell engine. You know, it can, you know they never run it at full chat because it's not got enough chrome and stuff in it. So... You're actually, you know, yeah. the Spitfire, you know, especially the five, which is getting its ass handed to him. Technical term, that people, um, oh. is <laughs> is actually going up against an aircraft that does actually have one hand time behind its back. The pilots don't like taking it over the channel because they think the engine's going to stop. So when they start being used as low level fighter bombers during the the raids in forty two, forty three, they're bricking it. They've got a big bomb strapped to the bottom of their aircraft. They're at the almost at the limit of their own raid range, and they've got a BMW 801 that could just stop. But yeah, and if you've got that, you don't want to increase the weight of your aircraft by sticking a bomb. Exactly, on it. and 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 but this is the thing: you then go get back across the channel, and this is exactly the problem that the Spitfire pilots going over on rodeos and circuses have. You've got an aircraft that doesn't like taking damage because it's this beautiful monocoque and it's all beautifully hand beveled because they're all made by hand. It, it doesn't take damage. Well, it's not a big brute, like, you know, the P 47 or the typhoon or the, to a degree, the Mustang, which is much more industrial in its construction. The Spitfire is artisan. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but it's, it's beautifully beveled and made and everything on it's lovely unless you look at it up close and there's not a straight rivet line on it at all because they're making them so quickly 
But this all comes down to this fact that you could build four, I think it's four hurricanes or three hurricanes for every Spitfire. And you know, this this is yeah. this is where it's there. But you know, in the Battle of Britain, the hurricane shot down 52, 52, I've made a note. Yeah, there we go. Fifty-two percent of all enemy aircraft claimed during July to October. Right? Fifty-two percent. Everyone yeah. will then go, well, there was more of them, and the Spitfires got the rest. No. Yes, there was more of them, but all the other types of aircraft that the RAF, the Fleet Air Arm, Coastal Command flew, barrage balloons, flak, everything else makes up that other 48%, right? And and that's that's the thing that people don't tend to get. They think, oh, this, you know, Hurricane had more kills. It's, you know, it's down to the poles. They were super aggressive and they got loads, but the Spitfire got the rest. No, it didn't because there wasn't that many of them. In the great scheme of things, you throw in gladiators, you throw in fairy battles, you throw in, but yeah, there's a barrage blue. All of that adds up, and it's it's not this even sort of coin toss between who got what. The numbers are quite there, yeah. and this idea of you know Spitfires climb fast, so they go after the fighters. You know the the Hurricane will go after the bombers, uh, kind of. Yeah, Jim Jim went on about this as well, but yeah, that if if you're climbing up. And there's a bunch of bombers there, and you're in a Spitfire. You're not going to go. Well, we're not going to go after them because they're not fighters. You know, it, it, you, yeah. you're going to go after them because that's your job. And and uh, it, it's just this weird idea that it's one or the other, and it's not. It's it's a myriad of things. And when they start yeah. sending the Spitfire low level across France, you're wasting lives because this thing does not like flak. Nobody likes flak. But when you've got all your vitals on the underside of the aircraft, like the Spitfire does, it's got its radiator and oil cooler there, glycol tank right in the nose. You know, it, you know that's light arms or stuff, because th- these parts of the aircraft are not armored. They're not, they're not yeah. tucked away like they are in, in other aircraft. Um, even, you know, even, even the Mustang suffered from that with the, the glycol tank in the, underneath the Merlin. You know, it's, it's, it's not packaged to be a ground attack aircraft. But... They make it to it because, as we're going to come back to when I do my next bit of this rant, there's lots of them because you've put all your eggs into this basket. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So what, in your opinion, were the Spitfire's strengths, just to win back a little bit of public support here, uh, and what were its biggest weaknesses? So we, we've, we've, we've mentioned a few of them. It yeah. can climb quickly. So that nice, nice thin wing, and this is the other thing, you know, people go, oh, it's got a thin wing. Uh, that's what's so forward thinking. It's amazing. You know, hawkers were making thick wings until the Tempest came along. They lucked into that. Because of the racing planes, they had empirical data that this thin wing was going to be good. 
they had a genius in Beverly Shetstone, Shenston even, who actually had his PhD in aerodynamics from Germany. He was at Heidelberg University, right? So you've got a Canadian with a German degree designing the wings on a Spitfire, mm. right? Get that, get your head around that, people, not watching seagulls. You have an aircraft that can climb really quick, which is great. So at altitude, it's incredible. And it was always, all of its marks, you get it up to height. It was the dog's danglies. It really was. It's highly maneuverable, um, very light on the controls. You know, you, you listen to these pilots wax lyrical about, oh, you, you just have to breathe on it and it'll turn. Well, yeah, because it doesn't have that powerful an engine. You know, it's, it's, it's got a thousand, you know, thousand, twelve hundred horsepower Merlin up the front. It's got nice big ailerons. It, of course, it's going to be light on the controls. It's pretty adaptable as well. So you can bolt other stuff onto it. So originally the, the, the cockpit on the Spitfire is quite small. It had like a, a flat bit of perspex around the outside. Quickly the, Mal the blown Malcolm hood comes on that increases visibility. They can't see behind them. So they literally take an Austin 7 rear view mirror, shove that on the top. <laughs> they're good to go. So they're able to do these little things with it. And then with Supermarine, you have, I always think of, Joe Smith sort of going, we've had this idea, we can do this, we just need a bit of time. And they're like, yeah, you don't have it. Put a bigger engine in it. You know, the, the trouble of putting cannon in it, you know, the you know, 19, you know, uh, is um, uh, Jeff Wellham's great book about how they turned them on their side. And they said, that it was a nightmare to make those things work. And the B and the C wings and, oh, it, it's, it, it's, yeah, I, I don't want, I'm supposed to be bigging it up now, aren't I? Yeah. Um, but there it is. It's, it's, you know, you know, as Jeff said, you, you could you could wear it like an, an old overcoat. It was amazing. And I think that's why, especially for pilots, when you're in a hostile, high-stress environment, you've got something that you can just throw around. It'll be great. You know, Woody, um, Woody Woodage puts it beautifully by saying that very quickly your muscle memory becomes attuned to the thing that you're doing. And in the Spitfire, yes, you need muscles because it's a manual aircraft. You're pulling wires and pulleys and things around. But it's light on the touch. You know you've got a pretty good chance, and you know that that's what it is. It's it's a pretty good gun platform, but it it is a very good dogfighter, and it does have a drawback as a dogfighter because we have to get onto the the other yeah. side of this coin. Yeah, yeah. Let go, Rick, on, go, boy, on, go on, go on. He can take it. Okay, we're back to fighter interceptor. Its job is to get up quick do some damage, get down again. By 1941, the war had changed. You know, you're no longer defending UK airspace in the same way that the system for which the Spitfire and the Hurricane were designed is therefore, yes, it's still a vital role. And you know, Air Defense GB, which takes over from Fighter Command, that is their job. But the war's moved on. You know, High-level mm -hmm. fighter sweeps, you're not going to get much. And, and they didn't through 42, 43. They're taking losses because they were getting bounced on the way home. It's, you know, basically they're doing what the Luftwaffe was doing to the RAF. And the thing is from 41 to 42, once the Germans have settled in France, their air defense system is incredible. And suddenly you're sending a lot of fighters and things, not even considering Bomber Command doing its thing but they can see you coming and they can decide when to attack you. And if they're going to stay at altitude, yeah, yeah, it's again. and you also know, Oh, it's a spitfire. It's not going to be able to stay here very long. So there you go. The range, the range on it is its biggest Achilles heel. Now portal who's in charge of the whole thing, for some reason has this weird thing that he hates long range fighters. 
So there's never a long-range fighter developed by the British. Um, yes, the Mustang comes along, it's technically British. But then you look at you know, Schmuid, what he's done is he's, he's had two, you know, a year and a half of watching all these other things going, hmm, that's good. Mm. That's a clever idea. I can do it better. And I can do it simpler. And that's Schmuid's genius. Because the other problem with the Spitfire, it's an ass to build. It is, you know, yeah. I've, I've been fortunate enough to go down to Airframe Assemblies or Arco and see these things getting put together. And they're beautiful works of art. These guys have years to build these things now. You don't, you've got yeah. weeks and you've got these complex jigs. You've got very, very aerodynamically efficient shapes on the aircraft, but they're complex curves. And you're having to beat those out by hand to make sure that they're right. And they have to all get yeah. fetted because if you've got panels in the wrong place, you know, quality control was looking at um, Spitfires coming off the line, and there could be like a 15 mile an hour difference between aircraft just from the way they were put together. And this is the problem with it, is Supermarine is a small... Let's look at, put it like this. Supermarine is Savile Row. Hawkers yeah. is Burton's. Right? Showing my age here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Burton's yeah. was a, 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 clo a clothing store where, especially in the 60s, you could get a half-decent suit for not, not a hell of a lot, right? I don't even know if it's still around. I don't think it is. Um, but this is the thing. The difference is, at Hawkers... And within the Hawker Sidley group, there is this idea that the design office is production office number one. Um, the guy who, who left Hawkers to go to fix um, the Manchester, whose name's gone straight out of my head, Canadian guy, he was a productionization specialist. So everything that Hawkers and Avro are doing is to the line. They're thinking how to build them. Supermarine are trying to build the bestest, greatest fighter plane they ever could. And to a degree, as a dogfighter, fighter interceptor, they kind of did. But you can't make these things quick enough. So to support it, you oh, this is the next bit. This is, you get this whole military-industrial complex rant that you're going to get to in a second. But you know, it's, it's packaged in a way that doesn't make a lot of sense to a modern designer. It looks amazing. They put yeah. things where it needs to go. It's great in the role it was intended to do. But suddenly you're stretching the application. And that's when things start to get a little little bit fluffy. Because, yeah. you know, I I you know, I'm I'm fighter bomber guy. You know, I I like this moving the mud down low. And it's interesting that, you know, there isn't there isn't a dedicated fighter bomber, but to be fair, there is not the RAF do not develop a new type of aircraft during the Second World War that enters frontline service. It's interesting that you mention about sort of Avro and Hawker and kind of the way that they work, because my grandfather worked in the giant Avro factory in mm. Yeadon in, uh, in Leeds, my favorite episode of War Factories. <laughs> but yeah, I, I remember him telling me that you literally, a Lancaster was just there. You know, you basically stuck it together, rolled it out the other end, and when you turned around, there was everything you needed to plug together another Lancaster just there and and you could keep these things going and going and going and yeah you get the impression that that's just not the supermarine way no, and this has come back to you know, let's, let's let's flip the analogy if if supermarines is making you bespoke furniture hawker sidley is ikea right because yeah. hawker sidley's idea is modular 
we don't have, you know, this comes from Tom Sopwith, right? This is a man who built probably the finest allied fighter aircraft of the First World War, whose company folds because he doesn't want to pay tax on it, right? That's the kind of mentality. <laughs> that, so he he picks up the remnants of Hawker and away he goes. Now, he's happiest if you don't have to retool, reskill, and re rejig your factories. So that's why um, the Sigurst um, cam frame system that's in every Hawker aircraft from 1925 through the Sea Fury is this big industrial, it's basically scaffolding tubes bolted together. And that's the middle section of, of most Hawker aircraft. That doesn't change. You don't have to change the tooling for that. You just have to change where the jigs go. The, the Lancaster and the Manchester, bits of that were made in lots of different places and were driven together to be put together. It means you can build them a lot quicker because you have a long chain supplying it. Spitfires, mm -hmm. you have this huge industrial complex built up. Castle Bromwich makes nothing but Spitfires, and they make them. They're not getting, you know, to a degree they are, but they're not getting sections of air bits and pieces from elsewhere. You know, it's at, at Gloucester's where the Typhoon's made. They're basically assembling stuff in kit form. You know, it's it's yeah. that that's kind of, that the best ethics model exactly, in the world. Exactly right. You know, to be fair, you look at these things getting put together now, and you're like, oh, that's terrible. I was I was chatting to see Vizar today about the way the ME109 was put together, and that's these beautiful skins that literally just get bolted on the top and the bottom, and it's together. It's amazing. It's like a zipper. Um, whereas we're getting all this stuff and shoving it, shoving it in. And this goes, you know, this goes as well to when you look at Rolls Royce, you know. The Merlin is this incredible thing. You send it over to the Americans who are used to making lots of things. And they look at this thing and go, it's a piece mm -hmm. of crap. How do you make this? And that's when Packard basically strip it down and make one type of Merlin. 66 is it? I think the Packard is. So they're very good at making that one thing better. Whereas Rolls-Royce are making lots of different types that they're making together. So it's a little bit more complex. But through this, you're starting to put all this resource into one type and you need to start stretching this type out and you know it's that's that's its weakness is that you're you're stretching something when in reality you might want something new but the mm -hmm. problem is nobody's making anything new the only people that are making new things are the guys on the other side but you know they're making them out of you know cardboard so on that point then you know why bearing in mind the you know, the amount of developments that we see from the British, from the Americans throughout the rest of the war, various advances in, you know, you just have to look at the use of radar, for example. We've got all these advances that we do and the rate of change, and yet then we seem to stick to the Spitfire. Like you say, when what we could do with this something new, why do we stick to them? I, I think it's what I was just saying there is you've put, so much effort into this. You look at Castle Bromwich and it's an incredible place. Plus the other satellite factories. They're turning these things out. They're the ultimate sausage factory. And you, you look at Second World War Spitfires and, and the build quality on them ain't great. No build quality on a Second World War aircraft is, is good. You, know, it, you, you go now and you see a, a, a new build, uh, sorry, a restored Spitfire being built and all the rivets are perfectly lined up. Everything's on set squares and they look amazing. You run your hand over them and everything matches up. You look at MH434 and there's not a panel on that thing that lines up at all. A airframe assemblies have an E-wing. So the E model of the, of the wing, um, I think, think it might be a Seafire wing. 
but they've got a panel off and you can literally see where the guy's done the rivets because he's just taken a pencil and gone, yeah, one there, one there, one there, one there. It's not perfectly spread out. It's just him going, that one, that one, that one, that one. And he rivets up and the pencil marks are still there. That's how they're making these things. And I think this dependency is you've got all of this resource going into this type of aircraft. You have a type of aircraft which everybody thinks is is the business. You know, it's 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 hype yeah. is doing what it is. So you've got the poor guys at Supermarine turning out update after update. You know, I kind of joke that at Supermarine you put a new coat of paint on a Spitfire, you get a new mark number because yeah, there's what forty seven of them, and it's you know fifteen years. <laughs> And what's happening is they're cobbling these things together. And then all this other stuff happens, which slows it down. The Griffin is late. So that means the Mark 8's late, um, which means the Mark 14's late. And the Mark 14 is a beast. It's incredible. It, it's everything turned up to 11 and the range turned down even further, right? It's, it's, <laughs> I love the Mark 14, the low back. A home defense aircraft for yeah. the time that we're winning you know, it's, the war. It's, uh, yeah, the, the Operation Big Ben, when they would send them, they'd be based in in, on, in Suffolk and places like that. And when the V2 would go up, they'd quickly calculate where it came from. And then these 14s would go racing across with bombs on it. They didn't have the range to get back. So they had to fly south to Belgium to refuel, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's madness. Um, but they're just stretching this thing out. And the thing is, and this, uh, yeah, grudgingly tip my hat to it, it's still pretty good all the way through, you know, because you've got lots of them, right? Yeah. And, you know, as soon as you start using it as a fighter bomber, things start getting a bit ropey, right? Because of, of a fully loaded, um, you know, say a Typhoon or a P-47 has got the basically is it five times the range of a fully loaded Mark 9 LF spit with half the bomb load. So that, yeah. and the other thing is the Spitfire, because it's got those spindly little legs with those teeny ass little tires on it. You suddenly put, you know, 1200 pounds worth of bombs on it. If you get it off the ground, you've won. Because six. Getting it back no, on getting, the ground is yeah, going to be Getting it back challenge. on is fine because you've lost a ton of weight. The problem is 60% of, of Spitfire losses in, in Normandy and beyond are, cra are takeoff crashes. Because they've overloaded the aircraft. Now, you look at something like the P-47, big, thick wing, lots of space to hang stuff off of. You look at the Typhoon, big, thick wing, lots of space to hang stuff off of. You look at the Spitfire, thin, spindly, beautiful wing with that lovely twisted spar on it. But you can only, you can barely get two cannon in it, let alone hanging a thousand pounder off each wing. Yeah, it couldn't do it. You put a thousand pounder on the thing, it'd probably snap in half. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's stretched to do these things. And then we come back to the fact that it can't take damage very well. And you know, there's yeah. one thing being shot at with a 20 millimeter cannon. It's another thing being shot at a you know a a, a flak and you know the four barrel ones. Then you get 30, 40 millimeter flak stuff coming up at you. And when you're getting attacked when you're pulling up, so you're exposing all of those vital bits on the bottom of the aircraft but again you can afford to lose them because you've got loads because you've got and, so many. You, know, you can take a mark 9 hf change a few bits on it it's an lf and you can put bombs on it so you know even if you're moving on to 14s and beyond you've got lots of these things and that one thing you want in war lots of stuff lots of things hmm. 
Right then, if it's not the Spitfire, what aircraft does deserve to be, you know, given the glory we give to the Spitfire? What deserves to be put on the pedestal and why? The Mosquito. Of course. Yes! Well done, well said, sir. I think there's a lot of people going, oh, I didn't think he was going to say that. The other one, no, it's not. I love I love the Typhoon, but <laughs> no, I'm sorry, people. It's not. It's the Mosquito. It is... A marvel of design. You know, the, the Spitfire is incredible. It's beautiful. It's in- the Mosquito is perfect. It is thinking outside of the box, but using what you have at hand. And that's where de Havilland himself, you, you just can't. There is a man that there should be more movies of, you know, because how, how he came up with that mm-hmm. range of air, but he comes up with the Mosquito and light. A lightweight, high-speed bomber that becomes a lightweight, high-speed, heavy fighter, that becomes a night fighter, that becomes a coastal strike aircraft, that becomes anything you want it to be, it can do. You can put a six-pounder in this thing. It was a six-pounder in the testy. Yeah, it is insane what the Mosquito can do, and it's made out of wood and glue. And... Yeah, a lot of Canadian wood in it. There we go. Thank you very much. But it's 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 incredible. And you you, you know, I was, I was you know, I was chatting to you guys before. She talked to Rob Lyman about the the Operation Jericho raid on Amiens Prison. Yes, the only aircraft that could keep up with it for escort was a Typhoon, ladies and gentlemen. But that's that's something different. But if you want precision strike at low level, it's the it's the perfect thing. You, yeah, you know, you, you look at what the Pathfinders did with them. There isn't a job it didn't do well, except maybe in the Far East where it kind of melted. But <laughs> it is it is incredible. And yes, it gets a lot of hype and people love it. And you know, it's great that there's, there's one being built here. That's, it's even better that there's some flying again. I remember um, uh, the old one from the 90s that used to be at all the air shows. I can't remember. It's, mm-hmm. it's serial. That was special seeing it. Because even, you know, even standing next to one, it looks like it's doing 500 miles an hour. It's, it is perfect. And... The thing that's great about it, I, I talked to Phil Blood about this at length. It is everything that Goering wanted, because Goering was obsessed. The Germans themselves were obsessed with what the forest meant to the Volk psyche, right? That's why the mm. RAF, the first thing they bombed was the forests, right? Because they understood this too. And mm-hmm. what Goering had sold to Hitler was this idea that these great forests in the East were going to provide everything for us. And then literally out of the blue comes an incredibly fast twin engine wooden airplane made from the forests of empire yeah i say empire just because it's effect dominion but you know what i mean yeah. it's this it's everything that goering had in his head and he's wanted you know callum douglas when he was doing his research the aircraft they talk about in their meetings with milchen and gallant it's not the mustang it's not the spitfire it's not jabos things like that it is the mosquito. How do we do a mosquito? And, well, you can't. Because, to be fair, you, you can't even make an engine without exploding because you don't got any metal. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was it the, um, the TA-1523? There was the, the, the Kurt Tanks attempt at it, which is quite cool-looking airplane. Um, but, yeah, ne- never going to work because they don't, they don't have the, 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 the glues for it. But, yeah, the, I... I I love the mosquito. Um, I I belittle it when I when I go on about fighter bombers and things like that. But 
guess because I have to. I've, I've got a reputation, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. But um, of course. But no, seriously, it the the Spitfire is lovely, and you know, it, it's it 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 has a deserved place in everybody's heart. But that weird blind spot of this incredible thing that did incredible th- things constantly for what three and a half years is not the Spitfire. It's not really the Mustang. It's not anything else. Yeah, the Tempest was pretty amazing, but that's another story. But it's yeah, it's yeah. the Mosquito because it is it is the testicles. I remember listening to um, Colin Bell, DFC, who was giving his talk at mm-hmm. Warfest, uh, and just that immortal question that came out that said, uh, "If you weren't flying a Mosquito, what would you want to fly?" And he just went, "The bloody Mosquito." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I I love Colin. If you ever get a chance to have a glass of wine with him, do because. You don't talk about airplanes, but it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for that, Matt. And uh, our apologies to anyone whose ideas of wartime air supremacy may have just been shattered. Um, but let's take a moment uh, of this to all the hurricane, typhoon, mosquito, Lysander and Tempest pilots out there who are going to get their well-deserved moment in the spotlight. Matt, thank you for bringing that rage. Thank you so much, guys. This has been a lot of fun. If you'd like to know more about Matt's work and research, then you can read his excellent blog at www.boneyabroad.com and you can listen to him regularly on History Hack and you can follow him on Twitter at Boneyabroad. And we're going to put links to all of those in the show notes. But once again, Matt, thank you very much for coming on History Rage. Thank you, guys. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter uh, at History Rage, or individually, I am at Paul Bavel. I'm at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send your own History Rages using the hashtag History Rage, because we want to know what really gets your goat. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Podchaser, wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps when you do that. And if you're looking for any of the books from our guests, you can now buy those from the History Rage bookshop. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.